When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello! And welcome to the She Loves Me edition of Slate Money. Rana's giggling already. She's like, that's such a bad pun. <laughs> I just, I'm waiting. I'm just waiting. I can't, I can't wait to hear what you're going to say. So this, by the way, is is the one and only Rana Faruha, soon to be columnist extraordinaire at the Financial Times. She is here with me in Davos, Switzerland, with um, Adrian Monk. I, I'm not quite sure. Like he's basically the dark prince of the World Economic Forum. How man to know? What's your what's your sort of what do you do here, Adrian? Uh, eminence bland, perhaps. <laughs> um, I, I basically I'm on the board of the forum and I'm in charge of uh, looking after the forum's media, its comms, and also all the young folks who we have associated with us, which is our shapers, who are our twenty-somethings, thirty-something young global leaders, and also the nice people who come here and do fantastic things who are called social entrepreneurs. So Adrian's yeah, basically everything. Oh, and what's more, in um, in New York City, getting up bright and early to to try and place this in some vague form of non-navel-gazy perspective is Jordan Wiseman. Hello from Earth, Felix. How are you doing? <laughs> we, we, yeah, we, 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 are, we are here on top of an Alp. We're going to be talking about Brexit and we're going to be talking about the, the, rise, the rise and rise of, of Goldman Sachs. The main thing I think we're talking about, though, is just... Davos and what it is and, and whether it's all coming to a screeching halt what with this sort of populist backlash around the world we have always as ever a bunch of world leaders up here and the world leader of the week is Xi Jinping from the president of China we have never had a president of China in Davos before I'm sure everyone at the World Economic Forum is very happy about this he came out and he gave a rather pointed speech where he's like, if you want trade and open borders and freedom, and he even quoted Abraham Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, <laughs> come look to, uh, you know, um, Chinese dictatorship. <laughs> right, and Dickens, and, Dickens. And, and the Founding Fathers. He was all over the place with the metaphors. It was amazing. So, Ronan, what did you make of it? Was this his attempt to sort of take over the role of global hegemon from 
an America which clearly doesn't want it anymore? I think it was definitely an attempt to say, look, we can be the grown-up in the room, you know, which frankly is something that the rest of the world has been asking China to be for any number of years now. There's been a kind of a rallying cry, certainly at Davos, for China to show up, uh, get more involved, act more like the rich, richer country that, you know, they are. And many people would say that they have become, um, you know, if not a developed country, pretty close to one. And, you know, there's sort of four or five different Chinas, of course. There's more, there's actually more billionaires, by the way, in China than there are in Europe now. That's worth noting. So, um, so yeah, I think that he was saying, look, you know, there's a, what many people feel is a 12-year-old, potentially, <laughs> in the, in, about to be in the Oval Office in the U.S. I was thinking more like and, four, but yeah. No, 12 is really, you, you know, tweets, video games, think that. Right. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and, and, you know, the Chinese are showing up and saying, look, globalization is good, we can work together. But to be fair, they need globalization. You know, they need it. I mean, this is what's been the driver of their engine for the last several decades. And they're in a very precarious position themselves, politically and economically right now. They have a huge debt crisis. Um, you know, there's various views on how that's going to end. But this is a moment where I think the Chinese are probably feeling... Uh, a lot of heat and rather fearful internally, um, but I think externally she was saying, look, we're going to show up, uh, we're going to be grown-ups, we're going to engage. Adrian? Yeah, look, I think it was, um, you know, a major moment on giving permission for Chinese business people to come out and be in the world, because if you look at the major Chinese businesses, they're state-owned enterprises, you know, they're very stuck in China. They don't travel. They don't uh, go on the kind of foreign trips that you see Wang Zhanlin from Dalian Wanda going on, that you see Jack Ma going on. And in a sense, they need permission from the very top to go out and be in the world. And I think what you've seen is a gradual uh, emergence of China into the global system. You know, you now, if I, if I travel, I see Chinese reporters in Latin America. I see them in Africa. You know, I see them around the world where once I would have seen Thomson Reuters reporters where, you know, mm -hmm. once you'd have gone and saw an FT correspondent. Mm -hmm. And now it's, it's Xinhua, it's Chinese central TV. You know, they are becoming a power in the world. You know, they have people in important positions. You know, they just had a deputy director of the IMF step down, Zhu Min, you know, a very respected, very responsible career global diplomat. So they're at a position now where they have a cadre of people who've gone through the global system, who know it. They know what they want from that system. And they're also smart about it. I mean, there's a, a Chinese professor just published a, a piece in Mandarin a couple of weeks ago talking about America's stewardship of the global system. And he said what it demonstrates to China is collaboration and cooperation, broadly speaking, are effective. Can I, Jordan, you're, yeah. you're less constructive on this, right? Well, I have, a, I have a hunch that having China as the only cheerleader of globalization at this point is actually kind of counterproductive. <laughs> Right. Like if if, if fair, the, fair, fair, fair. Yeah, right. Like I kind of the politics here are actually very strange to me because having, you know, having the Chinese leader show up and say, no, 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 globalization's still good. It's still a great thing. That's not going to the, the people who are, you know, he's he's preaching to the choir at where you guys are. But the only people well, look, who need I, to be convinced. Jordan, I just point, came from. Yeah. Jordan, I just came from listening to uh, President Santos from Colombia talking yeah. about globalization. He's a cheerleader for global. He sees the benefits of globalization. Yeah, but, but, but so I mean, it's not. It might be. It might be the case that some there's a you know there's a nascent movement in some Western countries, and uh, you know, looking at the the change in the presidency, that that this is something that people are concerned about, 
increasingly in parts of the world. You know, it's a seven billion plus world moving on nine billion, and a huge chunk of those you people actually, are actually in favour. You know, of it. it's interesting. I think Latin America is a little bit of a of an interesting and specific example because, in a way, they've already been through the populism thing. They're coming out the other end, and so I'm not surprised actually to hear that the Colombians are being cheerleaders for globalization. And you know, who knows? This could be where everybody's going. It could be that this is going to be a short term thing, populism in the West, and we're going to come out the other side. I I actually am not so sure about that in part because of the robots, which I hope we'll talk about later. And, but, and plus yeah. the Colombians uh, have always been like the, the globalists of Latin America, the Colombians and the Uruguayans. True, like, you're yeah. not going to get that so much from you know, the Argentines, well, the Venezuelans. Yeah, Macri administration's actually going in exactly that direction. Mm. So uh, you're seeing it also from the Chileans. So, I mean, there's, there's a big move across Latin America, I think, in that direction. And Venezuela's the holdout. But really. isn't Latin America basically a wholly owned subsidiary of China at this point anyway? <laughs> much like Africa, <laughs> yes. <laughs> So, again, though, like the threat to globalization right now, you know, I, I, I think it's beyond a nascent movement now that Donald Trump's in the White House. We're, we've moved beyond the nascent phase to the holy shit, it's here phase. And like the, the threat is, it, the, you know, the kind of older working classes of these of these Western countries. And they're not going to be, you know, they and the political leaders who represent them are not going to be convinced by China showing up at the World Economic Forum right. and saying and we this, need more and of this is, here. Yeah, this is exactly my, my sort of 30,000 view take on, on what's been happening is that Davos has been very good for the extremely rich and it's actually been very good for the extremely poor as well. Um, and it has been really kind of shitty for globalization in general. It's been very, really kind of shitty for the well, sort of blue collar working classes in Europe and America. Um, and I think my view of Xi's speech is that it's half of a good cop, bad cop routine. And it's the public half. The, in public, as Adrian says, he's going to come out, he's going to be a leader, he's going to be encouraging the Chinese businesses to engage globally, and he's going to be say, yes, yes, we're all in favor of everything you believe in. Um, and that's his public pitch to the U.S. administration saying, we are perfectly happy to play nice with you. Mm. And then privately, He's going to be saying, and I, you know, I've been told that he's saying this, like, if you even dream about starting to raise tariffs and mm -hmm. start, starting a trade war, starting to accuse us of being a currency manipulator or anything like that, then we have a million things we can do. We have a bunch of state-owned airlines, and guess what? They'll just stop buying anything mm -hmm. from Boeing. We have a bunch of currency... Um, support, which we're just going to stop doing. And I, all look, I don't want to, you know, naysay uh, a distinguished observer of the, you know, New York, London media scene, but, uh, you know, President G's, President, Faint President G's message was, was not aimed at America, it was aimed squarely at China. You know, that's his audience. That's who he wants to talk to. And the message was aimed at Chinese business as well, but also at the Chinese public. You know, that's who his constituents is, and that's where the Chinese media is pointing to. So, you know, he does feel the need to actually talk to that audience, and that's, you know, there's a, if you like, there's a populist element to his administration. Well, it's true that he needs to speak to the, the Chinese, certainly right now. I mean, it's worth noting that there is a record amount of Chinese cash leaving the country right now. I mean, that, yeah. interestingly, is one of the reasons that they're having issues managing their currency, um, which gets blamed on other things. Uh, the ca A lot of that cash is going to the U.S. A lot of it's going into the U.S. real estate market is causing an asset bubble. I mean, actually, Anthony Scaramucci, who's um, a part of the Trump team, was talking about that on stage in Davos on the first day. Um, so, you know, I, again, I just think that the, the Chinese situation economically at home and politically at home right now is very precarious. 
Although he, I mean, he, his personal grip on power is very, very tight. Yeah. And he has no real opposition within China. And if the renminbi continues to weaken, that only helps his domestic exporters. Like, he has that weapon against um, the U.S., right? What's, the, what's, what's he worried about? What's the biggest thing that she's... Well, I'll, just, I have, I'll, say, I'll say one thing, which is I, I think that in China there's always the, the worry of um, doubt in the system and unrest. Now, I think Chinese capital is leaving for two reasons. I think the Chinese, the Chinese business people I talk to, you know, like some of the American business people, think, you know, they're kind of bullish on the U.S. They think that, you know, maybe Trump has a couple of good ideas about growth. We can talk about whether or not those are going to be complete short-term saccharine, you know, bring back, repatriate cash, um, do buybacks and jack up the sh- sh- stock market. Not and to mention the dollar. Not to mention the dollar. We'll get to that, I'm sure. Um, you know, but, but a lot of them do think that the next 18 months to two years in the U.S., it's going to be a good place to put your money. But I think also a lot of them are really worried about the political situation in China, the tightening. You know, is is Xi Jinping uh, the new Deng or is he the new Mao? That's putting it kind of starkly and, and, and perhaps too black and white. But that's a question. Yeah, I was just going to say, I mean, the more the more uh, <laughs> I, I don't know if also weakening the, the yuan is, is, is a good good thing for China at this point because it just sends more money out of the country. I mean, right now, and that, I mean, capital flight is a problem for them. That's something they're trying to clamp down on desperately. So the old weapon of will devalue is kind of, it's kind of blunted. It's not really that useful. So that's just a small point I wanted to add. Look, I, I mean, you know, China is the biggest buyer of uh, industrial robots in the world. Chinese economy, if you go and visit Tianjin, if you go to places like that, People are wealthier than they are in the north of England. They're wealthier in the town I grew up in, in in the east of England. So there's a there's a lot of ignorance about just how far China has come because people, frankly, in the Western world are not making the trip to Beijing. They're not going to Wanzhou. They're not seeing the inside of China in the way that Chinese tourists are now coming and visiting the West and they're going to Paris. You know, they're going to New York and seeing Broadway. You know, you're not seeing a reverse travel in the other direction. I think there's a lot of ignorance about how far China's come and and some of the problems it's going to face, which are actually problems of advanced economies. You know, China's looking at learning from the examples of the UK is looking at learning from the examples of, of Germany in how it educates exactly the people you were talking about who've been in the middle of the globalization process. Those are the people who, like mine workers in the UK in the 1980s, who were stuck on disability benefit, which was a big con by government back then to try and buy them off. You know, those people should have been retrained, not put on disability benefit. Where was the retraining? You know, when the fishing industry dried up in Hull, when the fishing industry dried up in Lowestoft and Great Yarmouth and Boston and Skegness, you know what came in to replace it i'll tell you nothing you know the town i grew up in is as shit poor as it was today you know as 50 years ago there's been no investment it was the third biggest voter for brexit by the way Mm. you know and and guess what do you think that vote is going to result in investment coming into that small eastern town yeah no. No, same same thing in the U.S. I mean, I actually grew up in, in a um, sort of poor part of Indiana in the rural Midwest. Um, big Trump state. Um, same deal. Hollowed out. Uh, manufacturing sector hollowed out. You know, people are now working at Walmart and using, you know, methamphetamines. And, and no, I don't think Trump is going to save them. Um, whatever so, Anthony Scaramucci might say. He, he's also referring a lot to his working class roots, I've noticed, in Davos. I mean, Long Island. And new. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 
1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. But that's the perfect segue, um, Adrian, to the other, I'd say the second most important global leader in Davos this week is Theresa May of the UK, who came out with two speeches, one in England and one in Switzerland, about what is, you know, to all intents and purposes, a hard, complete break from um, Europe and the European agenda and the idea of European unity and the idea that all of these countries are going to come together for the, for the greater good, which Britain has been part of for uh, over 50 years and, and the broader project is older than that. It seems seismic and dreadful for the UK, as you say. Um, and how was she trying to spin it? And is, was it remotely convincing? Look, I mean, I don't know how it's going to be seismic or dreadful. I mean, I, I'm simply talking about the place I grew up in where I don't think whichever way the vote goes, there'll be a positive impact without a huge amount of commitment from central government to put training and jobs into a place that's done without either for 50 years. Um, I think she came and made the best of, of the UK position. The UK is in a negotiation right now. You know, typically in negotiations, parties have to lay out the most extreme position that they can possibly adopt. You know, this is a public negotiation. It's not a private one. You know, there's no game theory advisors going on here. So she's come out with some pretty hard lines on, on where she thinks, uh, you know, Britain will end up. And, you know, what we're seeing is an attempt to see where the other side lies. So she's the, she's the Yanis Varoufakis of Britain, basically, just <laughs> <laughs> Except for in the other direction. It's a very cruel, cruel <laughs> That is cruel, Felix. You know, I would make one observation. Um, there was a, a lunch uh, at Davos uh, held by British businessmen, and they were grumbling because Theresa May actually chose to go hang out with the Wall Street bankers rather than the British businessmen. And I think that that was actually a bit telling. She has a lot to negotiate. She has to, if you think about what globalization is, it's free movement of capital, goods, and people. She has to negotiate all of those things now uh, and how that's going to work with you. Europe. And I was always concerned, actually, that the poor millennials in particular that didn't want to pull out anyway were going to end up getting sold down the river as the Brits try and keep the banks in London. And you're already hearing people, a lot of people here at Davos say, look, you know, Jamie Dimon saying, we may not really want to move jobs. We think London's great, but we're going to have to by the looks of things. Um, so I think she's got a very hard road to sew. I think the speech went over kind of, eh, you know, lackluster. And, and I think a lot of Europeans, what I'm hearing is that they think that uh, the Brits are a bit in la-la land about how this is going to work. Look, I mean, I think, you know, go back in time to a previous kind of globalization era when Britain had an empire and it was the, you know, the sterling was the currency that was uh, dominating the global scene. You know, 1945, British voters voted for the National Health Service and against an empire. They kicked out Winston Churchill, voted for a Labour government, because guess what? The imperial system had not delivered prosperity to the tenements of Glasgow or the back streets of Salford. You know, it hadn't delivered very much for my grandparents. It hadn't delivered much for my parents, uh, you know, and so they wanted free health care. It was a no-brainer for them. And, you know, that and the welfare state. And that's what the 1940s and 50s and 60s delivered for Brits. Now, you can argue that uh, it was a strategic mistake for Britain or you can argue that Britain would have had to give up 
its uh, its ridiculous imperial possessions anyway. But whichever way you put it, people in Britain hadn't seen the benefit of a globalized system mm. then. And the lesson wasn't learned in the 80s, 90s and early thousands. And so they haven't seen the benefit of a, a system like the European Union to the extent that they feel committed to it, Will at least not in the... Adrian? Uh, I look p personally, um, you know, I live in France and I commute into Switzerland every day. And, my, you know, I want my kids to have the opportunity to be citizens of the European community. And so I voted for their opportunities to work and travel around Europe. And because I think that's important, you know, the fact that traffic's been one way into the UK. But, you know, I respect the fact that a lot of people didn't. And certainly where I grew up, you know, you think talk of filter bubbles, you know, one of the anti filter bubbles for me is keeping in touch with the people I grew up with in Great Yarmouth. And on Facebook, I can tell you, they did not give two monkeys about my views on on my kids moving around and speaking different languages yeah. you know they're not worried about their kids not having having jobs in london or at goldman sachs they're worried about their kids having jobs in great yarmouth you know? let me let me change the subject a little bit but to stay on this the british empire was was a like the roman empire was a very sort of well-organized technocratic institution um the European Union is is super technocratic. And what we have seen in both the UK and the US is what Michael Gove famously said, we've had enough of experts. All of the experts have been thrown out. We're taking, you know, an energy department in the US, which used to be run by a Nobel Prize winner, to be run by a guy who got the D in meat. Um, and it's a hard topic, man. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Dude, don't, don't badmouth meat. So, and... And so we're now entering a world, I think, where, which is in revolt against the Davos idea that experts, people who really understand what's going on, are the best place people to sort of make the world a better place. Well, I mean, yes and no. I mean, look, there's people here who, I mean, I know they're boring to a lot of journalists, but there are people here who actually work on the ground in some of the poorest places with real people. There are people here, you know, we've got a township talk radio producer. We've got guys from the middle of India. We've got people from Afghanistan, you name it around. They're also in Davos and they don't get the same sort of attention. And if you think about one of the things we talk about it being, which is a kind of global village, and, you know, that always elicits cynical laughter, um, from from people who don't have the experience that I have of going around this place. And just to give you a very quick example, right? I've always experienced Davos uh, until last year as kind of media and communications person for the forum. And, you know, I know a lot of journalists around the world. I taught journalists as a journalism professor. And so my bubble, if you like, was seeing the media and the media's view of what Davos was, which was we want as many interviews as possible with big business people and politicians, and we don't care about anyone else. And I never saw anybody else here. Last year, first time, I, I've taken on responsibility for the social entrepreneurs community, which is, you know, people who are working in some of the toughest places doing phenomenal things. I spent an hour with them. It was, you know, scales fell from my eyes. They'd actually enjoyed being yeah. here. They'd met with people they couldn't otherwise have got a meeting with and done stuff they couldn't otherwise have done. And so, you know, the idea that Davos is this kind of thing that stands for some kind of consensus I mean, it doesn't in the mind of heart, at least a third of the people who are here. Well, it's true that the, the, the most interesting meetings I've ever had here tend to be with the people that you haven't heard of. A lot of tech entrepreneurs. Um, you know, I once went, to, it was amazing, I once went to hear um, Nadine Gordimer and Kazuo Ishiguro speak. I mean, the room was not all that crowded because Probably everybody was at the future of banking session or whatever, you know. Um, there, there's a lot going on that people miss. Just on the note of experts, though, um, 
you know, I, I, I'll give myself a small plug, but it's relevant. I wrote this book, uh, Makers and Takers, The Rise of Finance and the Fall of American Business. And one of the things that I think people got really fed up about experts on, it's not that they don't have expertise that's not needed. It's when that narrative is the only narrative. Um, you know, this is what happened post-financial crisis. And I think that why we've seen such populism is that there was a storyline put forward by a very small group of people. We know what to do with the banking system. We're going to clean it up. Don't, you know, nothing to see here, folks. Move on. And it didn't happen that way. And they should have had a broader group of people in the room. And I think that that's what people are upset about. Look, look, the financialization process that took place over the last 40 years has been a phenomenon. I mean, it has been. You know, when people, when I was growing up, you know, I heard about this thing called the stockbroker belt. I mean, there wasn't one anywhere within 100 miles of where I was born. But, but you know, the stockbroker belt was supposed to be big middle class houses, not multi, multi million dollar mansions. And those houses were supposed to be kind of doctors lived in Stockbroker Belt. And so did lawyers and so did other people. And they, you know, it wasn't an incredibly distant world. I mean, someone did a comparison, didn't they, with Mitt Romney and his dad. And basically Mitt Romney's dad made 24 times what the average worker made. And he's a very wealthy man. And he was the, and, the CEO of an automaker. Yeah, and, and Mitt made 450 times what they did. So... There has been a phenomenal financialization over the last 40 years, and the consequences of that are pretty profound to the extent that, you know, voters in, in parts of Great Britain, frankly, know they're not going to be employed by major banking corporations in London. They're not going to be employed in most of the support services of those corporations in London, frankly. And so, you know, their view of what happens if those people have to leave? One of the things that's interesting, I will say here, I feel like this year is a little different in terms of the amount of frankness and frank worry that I'm hearing from some people in finance about financialization and about the perceptions that working people have about how the system is broken and not favoring them. And the combination of financialization and automation is really interesting. I was speaking to the CFO of a major financial firm today who was saying, look, we have to automate. You know, the, the, our competition in the world demands it. But he was very, very worried that, um, you know, the number of jobs that this was going to destroy just at his institution, not to mention the rest of the financial sector, was actually going to lead to more populism in four years, both in the U.S. and Europe. And he was talking very, you know, realistically about we might have to tax the robots. You know, we might have to think about uh, some kind of since the, 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 there's no evidence that the labor share is going to go up unless something really different in the paradigm changes. You're going to have to have the corporate share taking on more responsibility. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. So that, again, is, is, is the perfect segue to, to, to the non-Davos news of the week, which is that Goldman Sachs managed to make $2.35 <laughs> billion dollars in one quarter. I mean, it's, it's getting on to the billion dollars a month level right here. Um, and it's by far the best performing stock in the Dow since the election. It's up like 30%. Um, Jordan, is what does that feel like to you in terms of financialization and the, and the rise of finance? Because it seems to be it seems to be two different things. Like on the one hand, there's this massive backlash against it, and everyone's saying down with the bankers, down with the elites. And on the other hand, 
the banks have never been doing so well. And, of course, Goldman Sachs has taken over half of the government. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, the backlash is, <laughs> was contained to a few... It seemed to have petered out after a few campaign ads, right, featuring Lloyd Blankfein. Like, yeah, I mean, you know, it's the same as it ever was at this point. The Goldman's doing great. The banks are doing great. They're back into government. And on top of that, they have only brighter horizons ahead because, you know, the regulatory state that's going to be coming in is going to be extremely lax. And there are plans to try and, you know, legislatively uh, take apart what regulations were put in place by Dodd-Frank. And maybe that'll happen. But even if it doesn't, you still have whatever the regulators can do. They can take a laxer approach just by not keeping as close tabs on what the banks do. So, I mean, it's, and, only, and going to, it's only going to get if, if the resentments are still. The resentments, I think, are going to get worse, and the money's going to get bigger. That's that's what we've got. To, that's what we've to look forward to. I mean, it's been a great, it's been a great, great irony of the last eight years that the fact that governments couldn't act following the crisis because they were so so polarized. Um, you had the Federal Reserve and the rest of the central banks of the world doing, you know, what amounted to globally like you know a twenty-five trillion dollar money dump. That of course creates asset bubbles that benefits uh, the twenty percent of the population that owns eighty percent of the assets. So you know, it's no wonder that Goldman Sachs is doing so well and will continue to do well unless there's an actual paradigm change in the growth model. Sorry, what, I mean, what you're seeing with, uh, you know, with the, the financialization that's been going on is that, you know, we rely on there being a social purpose and social dimension to business. And what delivers that social purpose in advanced democracies is politics. And that, mecha- that, fe- that has been, and that feedback mechanism, I think what you're seeing populist voters tell us is it's broken. Yeah. And yeah. it doesn't work. Yeah. And we need something that, that smashes the managerialism that's been a characteristic of politics probably in, in those democracies the last 30 years. And you're seeing chips away at that in, in Europe. And you're seeing uh, a big chip away at it in the United States. Well, I, but I, I do think you know, that's one of the things you've, you, know, you have to take into account when you're looking at some of these numbers. I, I just want to say there's, it's interesting, though, how the, these dynamics play, are playing out differently in Britain and the U.S., right? Because in Britain, Brexit actually ha- stands to be a, a giant problem for the banks. It could actually ruin the city of London. Whereas in the U.S., we're seeing the same story that's played out for like almost 40 years now, where a president campaigns by uh, playing to white working class resentments, often with directly racial overtones. You know, Reagan did it by starting his campaign in Mississippi and talking about welfare queens. Trump, I don't have to review how Trump did it. And then comes into office and largely, you know, puts in place policies that benefit the banks and don't do a lot for the white working class. And so here, whereas in, in Britain, the rage is actually resulting in some sort of uh, tangible you know, backlash that's actually going to affect the bankers. In the U.S., they're, yeah. they're running away and laughing. Well, it's interesting, though. I, 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 think, I think that that's sort of a byproduct. You know, I mean, that's, that's about the fact that London uh, is London because it has access to the European market. And the fact that they're having to pull out means that they're going to have that access reduced. Um, it's really, I, I don't think that there's anything fundamentally different in the reasons and the sort of impetus there. It's just that the U.S. Wall Street is a big market and, you know, the U.S. Is, uh, can, uh, you know, can support that on its own, I think. And then the other thing, to your point, Ryan, about the the rise of the robots and the rise of capital, the other number that jumped out at me from the Goldman Sachs earnings was the amount that it pays its bankers as a percentage of revenues, which in most investment banks is normally around 50%. In in the ones which are struggling, it often goes up to like 60 or 70%. Goldman Sachs is now below 40%. It's 
39%. The bankers aren't actually making most of the money. They're making the minority of the money, and the rest is going to the shareholders. We're really entering this world of shareholder capitalism where all of the returns go to capital, and even the, the, the kind of labor that investment bankers do is being rewarded less. Yeah, yeah. Well, this was, I mean, the lead chapter in my book was all about the fight between Apple and Carl Icahn, which I think of as the kind of iconic story of this, where you have um, a small group of shareholders that have nothing to do with the founding of, you know, an incredibly innovative business that are basically just shoveling cash out of this enterprise um, because of this idea that I, I think a false idea that we have, particularly in the U.S., that the shareholders are really the only uh, party that a company needs to be responsible to. And by the way, businesses themselves, <laughs> well, I, you know, I know I'm preaching to the choir here. Adrian loves this, but um, businesses themselves are actually starting to worry about this and, and bucket. I mean, the B Corp idea is... is well, Goldman Sachs not included. Look, not I mean, included, but, but, uh, but consumer businesses, I'll just say one thing, consumer businesses in particular are worried because they look out and they say, okay, seven, you know, U.S., Europe, 60 to 70% economy made up of consumer spending. If people don't have more money to spend, at some point the math of their business stops working. You know, okay, so yes, you're right, preaching to the choir, and I, I mean, music to my ears because I think our organization stands for something that doesn't, uh, isn't very sexy, but it's the idea that you can't, as a business, just be responsible to shareholders. And that idea comes from my boss, who grew up in the 1950s, you know, 1940s, 1950s, in a country that was basically in some places reduced to kind of a, a map level of cities. And you can't rely on purely on private enterprise to rebuild a country in that situation. You've got to rely on your workforce, your citizens, a sense of civic duty, a sense of responsibility to other parts, because private enterprise is not enough in that situation. So I have a question about this, though. I'm fascinated. I, I mean, I'm very interested in the Germanic model. I think there's a lot to be said for it. But I do notice it's hugely cultural. You know, you go to these places and there, there's a sense of shame. I mean, in a lot of parts of Europe, it, an executive couldn't walk into the local deli if he was making, you know, 500 times his lowest work. And there is no such shame, I can assure you, in the U.S. about uh, about pay. There's still an aspirational, you know, reality TV Kardashian. There's you know. definitely been a subcurrent in Davos from people like Anthony Scaramucci and yeah, David Rubenstein yeah, yeah. saying, hey, I used to think that being an elite was a good thing, and now everyone's bashing the elites, and we should stand up for the elites. Yeah. And, and, they the think they're be, and they think they're being <laughs> funny, and it's yeah. not very funny. Look, I mean, you know, if people are, are getting by, they don't want to hear about someone who is pulling in millions and millions of dollars from a business that they can perhaps have no access to or no way of understanding or no way of being integrated into. So, you know, people have to be aware of that and they have to have a little bit of, of humility and some social purpose. And, you know, there are people here who've got both of those things and there are some people who haven't. But, you know, I do think that overall, you know, there's a time coming pretty soon where businesses are going to have to stop thinking about what they've thought about for so long because if government isn't going to take part of, in the social purpose regulation then business is going to have to take it on itself to a certain extent and actually step up and demonstrate not just to the wider public it deals with the consumers it serves and the people who are employed by it but, you know, society as it sees it constituted. It's not a bad moment, too, because interestingly, one, one of the big pieces of research that always gets released here in Davos is the Edelman Trust Report. And um, it's pretty interesting. I mean, for the last few years, trust um, amongst mass populations in elites has, of course, been plummeting. Trust in most institutions, government, um, business, NGOs, and media has been going down. This year, media plummeted, uh, no surprise, given fake news and, you know, the Twitter, Twitter sphere. Um, uh, NGO and government trust was down slightly. Business was 
is about flat, interestingly. So in some ways, it's a great moment for business people that care about this stuff to actually put their money where their mouth is. Well, you've seen that, I think, with people like Mark Benioff taking a position on uh, lesbian, gay, and uh, transgender right. rights. Yeah, 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 uh, yeah. You know, you've seen it with, uh, with other folks stepping up. So I do think that, you know, there's an opportunity there. Again, I mean... You know, it's tied to an existing structure. You know, the thing about politics, you know, we're here in Switzerland and people always talk about irony. Well, ironically, this is a direct democracy and you have to, we have to put this on by talking not just to the federal government, but to the cantonal government and also to the, the village government here in Davos. Now, there aren't many countries where you have to do that, you know, and, uh, you know, how those governance models work within businesses, if they're going to be the people defining social purpose, there's questions there as well. I have a question actually for agents. You're on one of your comments, which is a question slash comment, which is you said that eventually businesses, if, if government won't come in and force some sort of social purpose onto business, business has to step up and do it. But thinking about the U.S. again, I, I don't understand why it's the case. If you're an executive, you're looking at the situation where, you know, policy has benefited you and your C-suite for decades now. It's created all this rage. And as a result, these angry voters are electing politicians who are padding your profits further. So I don't see where is the incentive to actually respond to this you know, populist backlash. It's working in your favor. Well, I think the incentive is to be thinking realistically beyond the next year or two years and to be thinking about the kind of long-term impact of this, which is to say it's not sustainable as a model. And if, you know, if you're in a business that's making plans five years in the future, 10 years in the future, and there are businesses that have to take investment decisions, not just over five to 10 years, but over 25 and 50. If you're thinking about those things, you want to be thinking about what's sustainable. And in the end, responsibility is more sustainable than irresponsibility. I would, I would add, too, you know, I've spoken to some people in the Trump camp, and it, it, surprisingly, there are a few in that camp, and also gener more generally on the right, that are interested in um, talking about corporate pay, and in particular corp corporate pay structures, because the way that uh, corporate pay works in the U.S. right now, the idea that you're getting, you know, 50 to 80 percent of your comp in, in shares, um, buybacks um, since 1982 have been legal. So there is like a whole system that is set up that incentivizes leaders to basically do things to jack up their share price for the short term in order to get themselves paid more. I mean, it's just like, you know, if you think about... And that's about, something which the Trump administration wants to well, address? Well, interestingly, I've heard a couple of people, in, and I can't say who, in that camp say, you know, we might want to think about the buyback situation we might want to think about you know yeah it is it is and it's one of those i can never get my brain around it because it's one of those cognitive and i don't know if it's because these are people that have already made plenty of money and they just don't care or you know uh but but it's interesting i think that you will see just as we did in the election you're going to see this bizarre mix of mainstream you know laissez-faire republican ideas combined with some right-wing left-wing populism you might you might be surprised this episode is brought to you by progressive insurance Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with progressive insurance. 
Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Very quickly then, we just have time for a quick numbers round. Rhonda, did you bring a number with you? I did bring a number. What's your number? In keeping with our our populism, inequality, um, uh, age of disruption, uh, my number is eight, which is the Oxfam number that came out earlier Oh, my favorite number. Yeah, you got to say this number. I hate that number so much. Eight men, the eight richest men in the world have the same amount of wealth as half the world's it's population. A, it's a complete fake statistic, and you can go to fusion.net for oh, all, all the chapter and verse. If it's it not 50, sense. it's 30. Who knows? It's too much. <laughs> but it's true there is a lot of inequality. Adrian? I guess 24, which is the, num- the age of the youngest person who's here, who's an amazing young woman who was a refugee who swam to safety and then ended up swimming in the Olympic Games. And she's here telling her story and also telling a lot of people here about what's going on with those refugees who are dying every day in the Mediterranean, which is one of the ongoing horror stories of Europe. Jordan, did you have a number? I do have a number. I, I found one quickly. It's a 40, which is Donald Trump's approval, 40%. It's Donald Trump's approval rating uh, on the eve of his inauguration. Uh, that is 44 points below what Barack Obama's was when he was being inaugurated. So... Even if he's president, uh, or even if the country voted for him, it hasn't lost its mind so badly that it likes him. So that's good. <laughs> my, my number is zero, which is a number I got from Christine Lagarde, the managing director of the IMF, who came in and very sensibly implemented a bunch of gender quotas. She needs a certain percentage of women at various levels throughout the IMF. And then she woke up one morning and realized that zero is the number of men that the IMF is going to be able to hire over the next five years if they're going to meet those quotas. (laughs) That's the best. You get the prize. (laughs) That's good. And I mean, it's true. I mean, you know, there's a massive, massive discrepancy. We do a gender gap report every year looking at how many, at the balance between men and women. We see it here. You don't see CEOs. You know, the number of women CEOs stays between 2 and 5%. You know, we see the number of ministers in governments, 15% roughly. And that's been pretty consistent. And people ask why there aren't more women. We've managed to get to 20%. I mean, this year we've got a Young Global Leaders Program that, you know, we haven't announced it yet, but it'll probably be nearly 60% women, 55 56% women. And, you know, leadership's changing and either we put quotas in place or we find a mechanism to get that change but you know my daughter's coming up on 17 when i grew up my mother was the breadwinner i never honestly expected to work in a world where you know women would still experience the kind of problems they've experienced through my working life in getting equal representation it's just nuts so my my um unsolicited advice to adrian monk the head of the global shapers program at the world economic forum is that he should implement a Similar quota there. Right now, 50% of the global shapers are women. I strongly believe that should be raised to 100. Uh, Look, I think you're right. I mean, look, let's be honest. With all these programs, you know, one of the things when we went over 50% of women in in the YGL selection is like no one used to complain when it was 100% men. I mean, it's, (laughs) you know, so... Let's, let's try and get to that position where, you know, we don't get uh, hung up on those kind of things and where you, you can have all women running stuff. We don't see a problem with, you know, Justin Greening, with Theresa May, with, you know, the, the Polish prime minister. You know, there's a ton of, of tough female politicians coming through now in Europe. 
you know, one of them from the Five Star Movement is going to be on the populism panel that we're doing tomorrow. Um, you know, that's the next generation. Maybe politics can get it right, but business has uh, still got a ways to go. Way behind the curve. So that's all we have time for for the Davos edition of Slate Money this year. Thank you so much for listening to us this week. Thank you really super much to Adrian Monk and Rana Faruha in the busiest week of their lives <laughs> taking their time to come down to the bottom of the hill and do this it was awesome to have you thanks to Zach Dynastine to Martin and Julia here at Eurovision to Steve Lichtai and Andy Bowers and everyone else and to you for listening subscribe to us wherever you subscribe to podcasts and we will talk to you next week on Slate Money Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.